welcome to The Sad Bastard. I'm your host, Dave Tarnowski. It's been a pretty good week, I gotta say. I mean, I have no idea what I'm gonna feel like by the time this episode airs. None. I could be a fucking wreck again. I never know. That's the fun of having bipolar disorder. I was stuck in a deep depression for weeks until I finally reached out to my doctor and got a prescription for Abilify. It's an antipsychotic that works as an antidepressant for bipolar disorder. Normal antidepressants can be terrible for my condition, as I found with Prozac and Wellbutrin. They might help the depression, but they give my anxiety anxiety. I still take my mood stabilizer, Lamictal, and my tranquilizer, Xanax, as needed, not abused like I did years ago. And I'm finally feeling like I could function again, like a, what's that term, normal person? And I can actually get things done. I swear I should get paid by these drug companies for promoting their stuff. So if anyone from any of these companies is listening, I would love some of your money. That being said, one of the side effects of Abilify is constipation. And boy, do I have it. Abilify, when you need to get shit done, but not necessarily out. So as a result, I'm eating a lot of prunes and I'm taking Metamucil, a fiber supplement. Speaking of brands that could advertise on here. So hopefully things will get back to regular. (laughs) God. Metamucil, for when your psych meds are clogging you up in a totally different way than what you needed them for to begin with. Anyway, regardless of why I'm in such a good mood, I know I gotta enjoy the good times while they're here, because my mood can turn bad on a dime. What I'm experiencing right now, though, is probably mania. It's such a weird thing. The same thing that can cause me to have panic attacks can also make me feel on top of the world and able to get things done and live. There are so many times when the two poles attack each other, depression making it impossible for me to do things and anxiety telling me I must do all the things now. Like this podcast that I'm writing right now. Even though I've been in a good mood this morning and on a roll, it's been a difficult one to write. I've been starting and stopping for the past week. Typically, I start writing one as soon as I finish the last one, and I'm done within a day or two. I've gotten pretty good at doing these. The problem was, I was going to put out an episode I had recorded weeks ago, but it's a pretty heavy workload for my producer, the genius behind the editing and sound design that go into making this podcast what it is. The episode is all about my love of sad bastard music, where this podcast gets its name from when I was a little kid up through today. 
It's heavily influenced by High Fidelity, the movie where I first heard the phrase sad bastard music, and is going to have snippets, and in some cases, large chunks of songs I reference in the autobiographical order in which they appeared in my life, very much like how Rob and High Fidelity worked on reorganizing his record collection. My producer and I talked and decided it would be best if I edited it down. Edited it, edited it. <laughs> when I recorded it, it was about an hour long, and um, that was going to be a bit of an ordeal for her. And I'm not her only gig. I mean, thankfully, as I don't even make any money off of this. Ahem, <laughs> Big Pharma. But when I went and listened to the recording I had made, I just thought it was fucking terrible. So I went back to the script and edited the shit out of it. But then I just didn't want to record it. I just wasn't in the mood. I'll write a new episode, I told myself. Easy peasy. But then I was faced with having to figure out what the fuck this episode was going to be about. Typically, I take one question and really sink my teeth into the subject. But I haven't received any lately that have really resonated with me that I felt like devoting an entire episode to. Then I thought, well, I could just talk about me and what's been going on with my life. But I did that two episodes ago and I'd rather space things out. And then I remembered, this is my show and I could do whatever the fuck I want. So, you know those lightning rounds I've done at the end of some of these episodes? Well, this week it's all lightning, baby. For those who don't know, I do daily Q&A on two of my Instagram accounts, Nick Cave and the Bad Memes and Sad Peaks. And this will be very much like that, only without my pretty face. I'll take a bunch of submissions I received through the Instagram stories, where I ask my followers, what's on your mind? And reply to them in a much more thoughtful manner than time allows over there. First up is Natasha, who wrote, I don't understand how to be in a relationship. Why do we get bored after a little time together? One of the most common things people write in about is relationships. Some that have just ended or ended some time ago, and the person who reached out to me was having a hard time dealing with it. Others who are in love with their best friends or their best friend's exes, or co-workers. Just the other day, I was interviewed by Cora Boyd, a relationship coach for her podcast, Pillow Talk. And I found it interesting that we were often coming from the opposite directions. She with helping people find love, and me helping them deal with the aftermath. I'm dying for this episode to come out, and I can't wait for all of you to hear it, because we had such a great time talking. I mean, chemistry is so important. But I realized one thing I haven't talked about much is being in a relationship when it just becomes life. When the honeymoon phase, as they call it, comes to an end and you're just with the person and life starts being a drag again, or at least you get back to noticing what a drag it was before you met, one of the most important things to remember when you're in a relationship is you are a unit, but you are also two 
or more individuals. You have your own lives, your own issues, your own bullshit. And often that stuff gets in the way. I rarely saw my ex because of her career and that most definitely negatively impacted our relationship. Plus love is like a drug. It's super powerful at the beginning, but eventually you get used to it. That initial high isn't sustainable, especially because of life's bullshit. And also Natasha, you can't rely on your partner to be your everything. You need to make your own happiness. You need to be able to entertain yourself. So don't get into a relationship just because you're bored and need something to do. Or worse, because you feel like you have to. Because it's what people do. Be with someone because you want to be with them. Just remember that you're also with everything else they have going on. And sometimes people just want to relax and not have to deal with working on a relationship all the time when they aren't working on everything else. Next up is Rocco, who wrote, Do you think that beginning a romance would be possible in this difficult moment, considering restrictions? Rocco, for the past 20 years, every single person I've dated and the two people I ended up marrying, I met online. And right now, unless you're one of the many assholes out there acting like everything is fine and the pandemic is over or isn't anything that worries them so they put others at risk, online is the only way to go. If you're good with words, funny, at least sort of confident, know how to be chill, you can meet someone pretty easily. I've heard it also helps if you're really good looking, but that hasn't helped me back much. Next up is Reese, who wrote, My best friend is dating my ex. It shouldn't bother me, but it does. Reese, that should totally fucking bother you. I would question how much your best friend values your friendship. Now look, I get it. People can't help who they fall in love with. But with something like this, there's got to be a boundary. Not that you have any right to say what your ex can and can't do, much like you can't control your best friend's behavior, but this dynamic is not healthy for you. I always tell people who write in about wanting to date their best friend or their best friend's ex that they do so at their own peril. They will likely lose their friend in the process in either situation. You have a decision to make, my friend, and I don't envy you. Next up is Yolanda, who wrote, I started doing a lot of the things I used to like that I dropped because of depression, and I am overwhelmed. I totally get this. I used to often have such a problem with doing the things that filled me with joy whenever I fell into a depression. I would feel nothing for them. Ever since getting diagnosed and treated, I've been busier than ever before, and a large part of that is the negative voices in my head got tuned down to whispers, and I felt a confidence I'd never felt before. That said, 
as I mentioned earlier. I still do fall into depressions during which I can barely do anything. And that's when the two poles start fighting. I don't feel like doing anything. But you have so much to do, you lazy sack of shit. It might seem weird, but I'm actually grateful for having deadlines with this podcast, having to get one out each week. I love making these more than I've loved anything I've ever done. But the one episode I had to make while fully in the grip of depression, the one called What's On Your Mind, was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. My depressive episodes have typically been shorter since starting treatment, but this one had been really severe. Severe enough to reach out to my doctor and ask for something. And that's when, as I mentioned earlier, I was prescribed Abilify. Abilify, for when you just need to get that next episode out. Metamucil, for when you just need to get that shit out, but Abilify has fucked you up. That said, Now when I feel good and can do the things I love, I have to actively remind myself to take breaks. Like right now, I've been writing this since like six this morning, and it's now three in the afternoon and my body is tired, but I don't want to stop. Past experience taught me that when I take breaks, I end up in one prolonged break that lasts days or weeks or months. But now I know I'll get back to things after breaks because I want to. Things excite me. Life excites me. I'm very happy about that. So the bottom line is, take breaks. Don't exhaust yourself and end up hating the things you love and then avoid them when you're not depressed. Because then you likely will get depressed. And what a fucking vicious circle that is. Next up is Martina, who wrote, Grieving my scared of intimacy X. Most of the stuff he did was unintentional, and feeling compassion instead of anger makes it so fucking hard for these feelings to pass. This one hits home, Martina, because for a long time, I was scared of intimacy. Scared to be vulnerable. My ex helped me get over a lot of that shit. But in the end, I never truly felt worthy of her, which is a whole other thing, but not unrelated. But I will tell you that compassion is the way to go, not anger. It's okay to be angry, but if you sit with that for too long, it just turns into bitterness. And then, since they're your ex and no longer there, that can just turn into self-hatred. There's this great book called Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff, N-E-F-F, that I highly recommend. One of these days I plan on doing an entire episode just reading from it and reflecting on the things I've learned from it. And the most important thing, Martina, is right in the title. Be compassionate towards yourself. You are making good progress. Keep going. Try to detach with love. You can still love your ex as a person, but you need to let go of those other feelings that are holding you back from moving on completely. Speaking of self-compassion, next up is Kai, 
who wrote in one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever read. Regretting hoping I'd find love. My ma saying, no one will love you like that is messing with me. I am so sorry to hear this, Kai. Parents can be absolutely terrible sometimes. Tactless, mean, inconsiderate, bitter, and awful. But they're just people. Sometimes they mean well and don't know how to say things the right way. We're all just fumbling through life, including our parents and their parents and so on. When I was 30, I had just broken up with my first wife and moved in with my parents for a few months. I had quit my job and was living off of savings while I was grieving. This one day I was sitting on the front porch and my father comes walking out with a manila envelope and hands it to me. In it were applications for government jobs. Things that he said would be great for someone with no direction like you. At the time, I was appalled. Fuck you, I thought to myself, while just nodding and taking his tactless words. He wasn't completely wrong, but he certainly could have been kinder about it. The thing is, we were just products of our environments, our families, just as our parents were and their parents were. I know my dad didn't have an easy time growing up. And our parents, like their parents, are not nearly as self-aware as many of the people in my generation and the younger ones are. They didn't and never would go to therapy, for instance. Crying is a shameful thing, a sign of weakness, just like being sensitive. Now, I can't speak for your mother, but I can certainly tell you not to listen to her. Don't let her words affect you. They are just her words, just her issues. Prove her wrong. Next up is Nicole, who wrote, My significant other masturbates instead of making love to me and turns me down regularly. What can I do? Nicole, this is not a good sign and I'm pretty sure you know it. Porn is a powerful thing. I've certainly been caught in its grip many times in my life. And to an extent, I still am. But it's fantasy. It can't replace a live person, or it shouldn't anyway. Talk to him about it. Tell him how you feel. If he has fallen out of lust with you, but is still in love with you and doesn't want to let you go, that's not fair to you. And is that a relationship you want to keep staying in? Is that all that you feel like you're worth? I would suggest couples counseling. And if he has a problem with doing that, well, then he doesn't truly want to be in a healthy relationship with you. Next up is Amelie, who wrote, Bad timing with a guy. He's not emotionally ready. Still friends, but not sure to be happy with that. Well, Amelie, if he's being honest, it's an awesome thing that he knows he's not ready. He's saving both of you from inevitable heartbreak. As far as you holding on, though, there are 8 billion people in this world. Why hold out for someone who isn't ready when there are so many who might be great for you who are? 
If he's ready somewhere down the road and you're still unattached and interested, great. But don't put your life on hold for someone else who has put theirs on hold because they aren't ready to be with you. But also, what if it's just bullshit? Did he tell you this after he fucked you? A lot of people just ghost when they aren't interested instead of telling the truth. But just as bad, if not worse, are those who lie and keep hope alive in someone when the truth of the matter is there is no hope. Some people will fake vulnerability to play with your sympathies. Meanwhile, they just realize they weren't interested. But they'll keep you around just in case. I don't know where this guy lands, but either way, know your worth. If you want someone right now, move on. Stay friends if you want, but live your life. Next up is Karen, who wrote, So sick of toxic people. Okay. Every day, and I mean every single fucking day, I get at least one submission from someone in my Q&As on Instagram that uses the word toxic to describe a person or a group of people. Karen, and I'm sorry, but what a fucking perfect name. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I hate that fucking word. It's been so overused that it doesn't mean anything anymore. If everything is toxic, what isn't? So here's what I suggest, Karen. Write down a list of things that are toxic to you. Then look within. Examine your own behavior and see how many of the things you wrote down are within you as well. We are all flawed. We are human. The idea of people being toxic is the toxic thing. It's like cancel culture. Once something is labeled toxic, just like once someone is canceled, there is no room for redemption. If we really dug deep, we should all be canceled for one reason or another. I don't know that I've ever quoted Jesus, or rather quoted someone supposedly quoting Jesus, but let him who is without sin cast the first stone. I have absolutely done things that some would consider toxic and some would consider reasons to cancel me. I have betrayed friends and loved ones. I have been dishonest. I have been hurtful. I have harassed people. I have abused trust. The list of shitty things I've done over the years is a very long one. But I'm also here now, sharing my stories, helping others feel seen, helping others feel better helping others hopefully avoid the mistakes I've made. I have become a better person, and yet I am still flawed. I still have some toxic traits. Of course, there are people who have done far worse things than I, or most others have done. And some may very well be beyond redemption, but most of us are not. People can change. To be sure, there is a ton of toxicity out there in the world. Racists, rapists, sexists, man-children, incels, white supremacists, homophobes, transphobes. Just to use a few examples. So instead of using the word toxic, say exactly what you mean. Because that word is now useless. 
toxic is officially canceled. And as if to prove my point, Grace wrote, My partner demanded I cut toxic people out of my life. But now I have no friends left. I'm so lonely. Everyone is toxic. If you cut every toxic person out of your life, you're left with no one. Oh, and by the way, Grace, dump your partner. You sound like a fucking asshole. Next up is Jordan, who wrote, Can't tell if my friend is suffering from depression or just doesn't like me as much anymore. Jordan, as someone who suffers from depression, I can tell you, without a doubt, that what they are going through likely has nothing to do with you. Most of my friends are online. I haven't met them in person, but most of them I hope I will someday. But I consider them just as real as the friends I know physically. I mean, all right, that sounded sexual, but no, I haven't had sex with... All right, most of them. But, you know, some of them are exes and they became friends. Anyway, I could go months without talking to them. Same with family. I go through long stretches of time when I simply cannot talk to my parents. And I can't even really explain why. It's just the way mental health disorders go. I need to isolate. I need to be with myself to sort my shit out without any outside influence, without any criticism. Friends and family don't necessarily mean to criticize, like Kai's mom, for instance. But they can be tactless and not think about the weight of their words. My advice is to be as understanding as possible. Be there when your friend needs you and stay away when your friend needs you to. Next up is Anu, who wrote, Contemplating divorce, been together 10 years, hard shit. Anu, my heart goes out to you. I've been married twice. The first one ended after eight years and the current one was seven almost seven. It takes a lot to get to that point where you throw in the towel. There's this perfect quote from Mad Men about divorce. Nobody realizes how bad it has to get for that to happen. Happy couples don't divorce. It's not like they just say, you know what, let's quit while we're ahead and go out on top. And when it happens, you have to find yourself all over again or for the very first time, depending on how young you were when you got married. Or in my case, depending how old you had to get before you figured out your shit. I was a man-child up until I got to my 40s, and in some ways I still am. For instance, I moved into this apartment after splitting with my second wife nearly four months ago, and I still don't have any pots to cook in. I have a couple of pans that my friend Carolyn gave me when she was packing to move, but that's it. Just the other day, I wanted to hang a framed print on my wall, and I went to look for the tape measure, but, oh, that was my wife's. Her father gave it to her, along with all the tools we had that I now don't. Little things like that suck, but you get past them. They matter less than the growth I've earned over the past four months. So I don't have some things around the house that I need. I have me. And I know I could count on me to have my own back now. 
Marriage can be a safety net, but nets can also keep you trapped. And finally, Heather wrote, met with my ex for the first time in five months and was surprised to find I don't love him anymore. That's major. I've been grieving the relationship intensely. Heather, there's a reason why I saved this one for last, because this is probably the one that hit home the most with me. My wife and I saw each other for the first time in three months uh, at the beginning of September. We met up in a park, we sat and chatted for a bit, catching up on everything that had happened since we last saw each other. We didn't really talk much about what had happened before the split, the things that had led to us deciding that we should break up. Things were very different between us, and I didn't feel any urge to attempt to get back together like I certainly would have had we gotten together a month earlier, let alone a couple of weeks earlier. I had been grieving terribly over the loss of her, over the loss of my best friend. Pain was the worst thing I had ever felt. As I've said before, I'd take a broken leg over a broken heart any day. And holy shit, the crying. It was nonstop, uncontrollable racking sobs. The regret, the what-ifs, the self-hatred. All mixed in with the occasional days when I thought I was okay and I was moving on. At first we talked more than we should. Then we went longer and longer without speaking, much longer than we ever had. And I went out of my mind. This was in August, the second month and by far the worst. We had a series of conversations that month that led to what felt like a bit of finality. The tiny grain of hope I had been holding onto diminished to a mere atom. Then, after another long period of not talking, she asked if I'd like to go for a walk with her, and that atom of hope multiplied into a grain again. But then I saw her, and it was like looking at an entirely different person than the one I had in my mind over the past three months. I don't know how it was for her, that's her business, but I realized the woman I was in love with God. But I did still love the woman I was in that park with, just in a very different way. The way only people who have been together for years, people who, at least at the present moment, knew each other better than anyone else on the planet could do. But what was once there is irrevocably gone. And what cinched it for me was when we parted company and she went her way and I went mine. In the past, when we were together, any time we parted, we would look back at each other, often multiple times. I stood on the corner for a long moment, watching her walk away from me. I watched her for maybe a minute, the time it took her to traverse the long block from where I stood, and she never looked back. That was the true moment I knew I had to move on. The grain of hope shrank down to nothing. I walked home, I sat down, and I cried over the sadness of it all. The finality. What we had was dead. 
but now I'm grieving it in a different way. About a month after that, the crying returned. I was depressed and vulnerable, and the old feelings, the ones I wrongly believed were gone, were suddenly back in full force. And then they were gone again, as quickly as they came. It's now six weeks since we saw each other, and I don't know when the next time will be. Just as I don't know when the next time I'll cry over her and us and all that could have been will be. But I know I will. I know I still love her. And I still regret. And I'm still not healed from it all. I'm healing. And it's going to be a long process. So Heather, as much as I'd love to say that yes, perhaps you are completely over it, I would caution you to just allow the grieving process to do its thing. Grief is not a straight line, and grief takes its sweet-ass time. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks to everyone for writing in, and to everyone for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast. And follow my Instagram accounts, Nick Cave and the Bad Memes, Sad Peaks, Mimi Bridgers, Don Trooper, and the Sad Bastard Pod. On the Cave and the Bad Memes and Sad Peaks, I do the daily Q&A and the stories where you could tell me what's on your mind, and I might save it to reply to on a future episode. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care of yourselves. Stop saying toxic all the fucking time. Taking me down, my friend As they usher me off to my end Well, I bid you adieu well, I'll be seeing you soon What they say around here is true